The TNT Shop has great gift ideas for your furry family member. And we don't mean your Aunt Dolores. You stink! The TNT Shop has it all at tntradio.live. This is Weekends with Jason Olborn on today's News today's Talk, TNT. Welcome back to Weekends with me, Jason Olborn, here on the Sunday edition. And those that have been watching may notice a quick wardrobe change in the break. No, there was no pre-recorded interview with Mark Morrie. It's just that things were pretty hot and sticky where I am. And uh, I did actually prepare that shirt for my next guest. I wanted to be as professional as I possibly could, even though, as everyone knows now on the weekend show, it's relaxed, conversational, people from all walks of life. So uh, I didn't get to fulfill that one. So uh, it doesn't matter because my next guest, Professor Ian Plymer, is out at Broken Hill at the moment. And I bet the weather will also be a little bit uncomfortable at this time of the year. But let me tell you a little bit about Ian Plymer, if you don't know. He's an emeritus professor of earth sciences, uh, sciences at the University of Melbourne, where he uh, was professor and head of earth sciences after serving at the University of Newcastle as professor and head of geology. He was professor of mining geology at the University of Adelaide and has published more than 140 scientific papers and was one of the editors for the five-volume Encyclopedia of Geology. Professor Ian Plymer, welcome to Weekends. Thank you for having me. Nice and cool here in the ba- in the basement. But it's 33 to 36 outside, which is very pleasant because it's a dry heat. There you go. That sounds a little bit Las Vegasy, doesn't it? That uh, yes. the, hum- the humidity at this time of the year is is quite unbearable. So that's wonderful. Thank you for taking the time to be here today from uh, Broken Hill. You know, every day you pick up a, a newspaper or you see something and you feel like, uh, especially for people, uh, Ian, that uh, that follow the work that you do and listen to what you say, and you are uh, in great demand to be on and uh, really appreciate your time today. But we feel like we're being gaslit on a daily basis in this world where uh, another media uh, organisation comes out and then praises Al Gore yet again. I mean, Al Gore can't get a single thing right, and yet he gets another chance, for example, to uh, come out and tell us that if we don't do this, we're all going to be dead. And yet now we're learning that uh, in Ireland, for example, they're going to slaughter 200,000 cattle for the climate. I mean, aren't they doing it to us anyway, one way or another, whether we they pretend that we're heating up the world, we're all going to burn out, or if we starve, isn't it the same result that they that they're setting out to do? Well, this has got nothing to do with climate. It's got nothing to do with the environment. Uh, this is a new scam, and it's a case of follow the money. Al Gore has become a multi-billionaire from frightening, frightening people witless about a mythical climate change, and if you only looked into the past, you'd see that the variation that we're currently enjoying today is far less than previous variations. So uh, we're being fed absolute BS. Uh, the media love scare stories. This is what sells, to have a scare story. Most of the media have absolutely no scientific knowledge whatsoever. I could ask them a a question which I could answer when I was 12 years old and they wouldn't be able to answer it. Um, The question might be, what's what's the atomic weight of carbon dioxide, which is meant to be a poisonous gas? Well, that gas is colourless, it's odourless, it's tasteless and it's plant food. It drives the world. And we do have a problem with carbon dioxide. There's just not enough of it in the atmosphere. We are getting dangerously low. We're getting to a level where plants are struggling. And we've seen that in the evolution of plants from C3 to C4 plants. So the story we're being told is one of sensation. It's one of hysteria. It's one where there are many other agendas, but these agendas have nothing to do with the climate. 
and nothing to do with the environment. And people are using the climate scare to get onto any other bandwagon they want, to have you eating grass clippings or uh, to have you uh, not flying or to have you locked in your house with a 30-kilometre radius that you go, and on we go. This is all about unelected people wanting to control us, nothing to do with climate. You know, it's perfectly put, and and it coming from from you, Ian, is uh, is very important for people to to know that they're not jumping down a, a rabbit hole and and just being contrarian. It's not that at all. It, it seems to be quite obvious. In a recent video I saw in the um, uh, U.S. Uh, Congress. They were asking a series of politicians and so-called experts about how many parts per million carbon dioxide was or what percentage carbon dioxide was of the atmosphere. And uh, we know that it's around 430 parts per million. They were coming up and saying answers like 5%. I mean, how can you be even in a position of making a decision if you're that far out in terms of how this works? I saw that video. It was quite entertaining, the absolute ignorance of these people. Um, We can survive at 5%. Submariners live in an atmosphere where there's 5% carbon dioxide. It's not a poisonous gas. Mm -hmm. If you have 80% carbon dioxide, then there's just not enough oxygen. So it's not the fact that a high carbon dioxide content will kill you. It just displaces oxygen. There's not enough to have. Now, we've lived on a planet where the carbon dioxide content has changed. Life has endured carbon dioxide contents being over 20% for billions of years. And for the last 530 million years, the carbon dioxide content of the atmosphere has been decreasing. Um, Over the last 50 years, it's been decreasing quite alarmingly. So uh, the carbon dioxide content does change. It is a trace gas. Uh, It is plant food. It's fertiliser for plants. If we put a little bit more in the atmosphere, you save yourself having to hug a tree. You're just feeding it. So I'm a great believer in burning oil and burning coal to feed the plants, feed the crops, make the forests grow. And we know that. We've got satellite imagery that goes back for decades now, and we have been able to show a slight greening of the planet due to the increased carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. We've been able to have crop yield increases, and that's partly due to carbon dioxide, partly due to better fertilisers, partly due to better farming practices. But the end result is that the area of forests on planet Earth has decreased because of the carbon dioxide and other practices. So what we're being fed by a media chasing hysteria is absolute bunkum, Politicians are making decisions when they have no idea what they're talking about, and this is how we end up in bad policy. And this is how countries like Germany, which was once a great industrial nation, is now struggling to be an industrial nation because of bad political decisions based on um, science, allegedly, but the people making those decisions don't know any science. Well, well, this is it, and as a as a scientist yourself, I mean, what does it say about academia as a whole now? Is it, is it a discipline, an institution in disrepute? Well, I think universities are pretty sad places. Uh, we have lost the ability of scholarship. Universities are places where people are now no longer taught to think. They are now, now no longer taught to argue where in one hour you can be on the other side of the fence arguing Uh, one case, and then you've got to cross sides and argue the other case. Now, that is an intellectual process. It's not a process of ideology. We are now having universities only push ideology, only push one viewpoint, and only give the view 
of the woke generation. Academic institutions now uh, are few and far between. We have many ideological institutes, and these academic institutions consume taxpayers' monies, and you have to ask, well, why? Why do universities not teach people how to think? And what you should get out of university is a deep love of knowledge, um, a huge amount of information committed to memory, the ability to think, and the ability to search out new knowledge. And you can't get knowledge by Googling it. This is where you just get some information which is highly edited, but it's not knowledge. So universities have failed in my view, and this has been happening for the last 40 or 50 years. We've had a complete crisis in education, a dumbing down of the education system. And you can now ask people simple questions on science or history or geography, and they have no idea. Goodness me, it's incredible that you explain all of the, the reasons that you should pursue uh, a university degree. I, I studied a Bachelor of Arts in, in 1990. I think I was the last person in, in Australian uh, educational history to handwrite his entire degree graduating in 1993. It just seems like a, a, a well a lifetime ago, really. But when um, my best friend at the time said to me, what do you say to an arts graduate? And I said, I don't know. He said, uh, I'll have a Big Mac and fries. I, uh, I was offended, but at the same time, I laughed and I thought he's probably right. But then it occurred to me that all the things that I'd learned at university were exactly what you, you said. And for me, it was the key of the ability to be able to think. The one thing that you didn't mention in there, of course, is that the reason that people seem to only want to go to university today is to you know get into ad hoc for 50 or 100,000 bucks for a vocation. And so therefore they go along the path of least resistance, join a bandwagon. And of course, this would feed into the whole idea of university preparing ideology as opposed to process and the idea well, to think. Well, yes, yes and no. Um, universities um, used to have a BA degree, which was a very, very powerful degree. And that was the degree where people read history, read English or read um, classics. And the civil service required people who were able to communicate, who had a deep knowledge of history, and these were treasured people for the civil service. If you had an honours degree or a master's degree in arts, you were eminently employable in the civil service. That's not the case any longer. Yeah. You need a degree in sociology or in law or in left-footed Morris dancing, and then you will um, maybe get a job in the civil service. So uh, that, that, that's a great tragedy because an arts degree should broaden your mind. It should expose you to different ways of thinking. You should learn philosophy. You should learn history. The vocational degrees, such as medicine or vet or science or engineering, um, generally, the graduates get paid a lot better, and it's a great middle-class dream to have your children go to universities, so governments could not resist the temptation of charging people to go to universities. Now, I think there's a much better solution. Have universities as totally free, but you have to pass a matriculation exam before you can go to a university. Make them selective. Make uh, a university based on scholarship and on quality. And people will really struggle then uh, to survive a university because today, if you've got a pulse, you can go to university. And that shouldn't be what it's about. These are for elite people and there's nothing wrong with the elite. And you don't go to someone digging a trench saying, oh, can you help me? I think I've got cancer. No, you go to someone who's had an elite 
establishment education like a medical practitioner and get help. So universities have been made for everyone, but I don't think they are. And that's why we're having such a shortage of tradespeople. Uh, we haven't had enough people doing the trades where the great middle class dream is to go to university and you get yourself a degree. And many of these degrees are totally and absolutely useless. Oh, goodness me, you, you couldn't have said it any better. I mean, there are degrees now in, in learning in dance, uh, for goodness sake. Uh, <laughs> and, and these are legitimate degrees that people get into hop for, you know, as I said, 30, 40, 50,000 bucks to, I mean, what do you do with it at the end? I mean, there's there's people doing sports uh, degrees, sports management, et cetera, and their real only career path is to go and get a job at a gymnasium and become a personal trainer. You'd have to think at that stage that it should become a trade uh, rather than, uh, than to be degree qualified as if it's some sort of of, you know, checkpoint to get in. You've joined the club, so to speak. And it feels like that we're again on this bandwagon of compliance and hive mindedness, et cetera, and keeping up with the Joneses even, like everyone has to get a degree to want to do everything. And at the same time, we're seeing that the um, that academia is being watered down. We've never seen anything like what we've seen in the climate debacle, uh, the COVID debacle, the same way. Uh, in, in Again, people being shut out in so many different ways uh, out of the debate. Um, how does academia even expect to live or to survive if, if it just wants to shut down debate? Well, I don't think they will. I think they'll have to have a very significant change. That change can only be driven uh, by a financial crisis. And if it's a financial crisis, we will have to review the number of universities that the taxpayer funds. Uh, there are some very good private universities around the world, especially in the US, and that's the direction we should be thinking about going. Um, we, we, the taxpayer, shouldn't be paying for people to pursue their hobbies. Now, I've been head of department in a number of institutions in my 30 years as a chair in various universities. The taxpayer was funding people to pursue their hobby, and their hobby was research. They published it in a certain um, field. There are very, very few people in the field. If they published a paper, maybe five people in the world read it. But they got paid for that, and they pursued their hobby. And most people in the workforce, if they have a hobby, have to do this in their own time and pay for it themselves. But academia are able to pursue their hobbies and we pay for it. So I think we've got to uh, very much restructure what a university is because the universities were originally invented um, to train men, not women, but to train men for the priesthood. Later, law, medicine, and some of the vocations came in. And later, there was science and engineering. But the purpose of a university was to train people in history, in languages, in the classics, and, and in the history of Western civilization. We have lost that purpose. So we have people now who have all sorts of titles strutting around universities displaying their peacock feathers. Now, when I got chairs, I had to apply for these. This was an international race to get the chair. You had no idea who applied for the chair. This was done um, by international advertising. You had to compete against the world, and if you won it, you were offered a chair. In today's world, people will now get a chair, uh, will get an adjunct professorship if they donate a lot of money to a university. If they've hung around like a bad smell for a long period of time, uh, they will eventually get themselves promoted to professor and will use that title. So this is part of the dumbing down of a university. This is part of the loss of scholarship. And the gre greatest people I have had on my staff at various universities are those that give you grief. 
They're the ones that argue all the time. They're the ones that might stay with you for five years and you're trying to build this person's career and they get a better offer and move on. That's what a university should be about. It should be about a fluidity of staff movement, a fluidity of ideas, stimulating students to be rebellious and to ask questions and to seek out evidence that underpins a very sensible question. But we now have these degree shops putting people in there such that they become uh, degreed uh, baristas, uh, putting people in a situation where their degree is totally useless. I know a lady who's got two degrees. She is driving trucks underground. She's much happier driving a truck, by the way, than using her sociology degrees. But <laughs> <laughs> she just loves it. So um, I, I think we're probably producing far too many graduates from far too many universities. Yes, exactly. And at the same time, without the quality, it's kind of pointless at that of stage. Course, but, yeah. but then you have people believing that because they've got some sort of form of university degree that they climb some invisible ladder in society. And then, and then of course, you get the, the stubbornness that comes behind it, and that becomes uh, a whole different problem with society. We're going to take a break now. And uh, when we come back, I'm going to talk to Professor Plymer about a couple of odd articles that have popped up in the last few days uh, to get his opinion and take on it, uh, the amount of uh, climate stuff, nonsense that's going on and also to look for some solutions because all of us are saying, well, where do we go in all of this? It's just a massive, massive um, uh, one-way street here to uh, to our peril. There's got to be another way out. In the meantime, if you love a documentary, then you'll love our special screenings, Uninterrupted Cinema features some of the latest or notable documentaries from the world's best filmmakers. Check out TNT's website for more information. Weekends are better when you spend it with us here on today's News Talk, TNT Radio. TNT's Misty Winston. She says, how is anyone still talking about October 7th? What Israel has done since October 7th is many times worse than what happened on that day by any conceivable metric. The only way to feel otherwise is to believe Israeli lives are worth many times more than Palestinian lives. How is Israeli suffering still being centered over vastly less significant acts of violence three months ago while ex exponentially worse violence and suffering is being inflicted by Israelis right this very moment? If your nation is attacked and you respond to that attack by immediately murdering thousands of children with incredible savagery, then you forfeit any right to expect anyone to give a shit that your nation was attacked. Israel responded to the Hamas attack by doing something much, much worse than anything Hamas has ever done. And in doing so, completely delegitimizing itself as a state and completely validating everything the Palestinian resistance has been saying about the state of Israel since day one. Misty Winston on today's News Talk TNT. Hi. I'm your retirement fear. But don't be scared. You're still in pre-tirement. Pre-tirement? Does that mean I have more time to plan? Precisely. Here, this is pretirement.org. Huh. Retirement savings options? <laughs> Potential tax breaks? Yep. Ooh. Oh, I could build up savings for my side hustle. This isn't scary. I'm doing it. You got this. Visit thisispretirement.org for free resources to help you customize your action plan. The human mind is like a computer. No matter how efficient it may be, its reliability is only as great as the information fed into it. That's a campaign promise. Tell us the truth. Tell us the truth. We mandate that the truth be told. You're hearing it. TNT.
Welcome back to Weekends. My guest this hour, Professor Ian Plymer. Professor, a story popped up in The Guardian about a week ago, and it said documents show that industry-backed Air Pollution Foundation uncovered the severe harm climate change would wreak. It says the fossil fuel industry funded some of the world's most foundational climate science as early as 1954. Newly unearthed documents have shown, including early research of Charles Keeling, claiming that they spend a whopping $13,000 or $158,000 in today's money back in 1954 to fund his earliest work in measuring carbon dioxide levels across the Western U.S. US. And right at the bottom of the article, it says that the Guardian reached out to his son and didn't get comment, but they are insisting that the, that the oil companies around the world knew about some catastrophe 70 years ahead. And of course, what are they doing? They're looking for culpability and compensation. What's your take? Well, it's a Guardian, so immediately you've got to say, well, that's total rubbish. You don't even wrap <laughs> fish and chips in the Guardian. You could end up getting poisoned. Um <laughs> The fossil fuel industry, like many other industries, has funded many things in society. Um, there are uh, people in various industrial corporations that feel we should be funding this, funding a theatre, funding the opera. Um, so uh, just because Exxon might fund the opera, does that mean in Don Giovanni that they would agree with um, killing someone? Does that mean that they are supporters of misogyny? I mean, that's just a, a ridiculous argument. Keeling's work, by the way, uh, we have to raise an eyebrow about. It's uh, it's pretty speculative um, making conclusions from the measurements they make because the measurements they make of carbon dioxide, uh, there's a spectral overlap between water vapour and carbon dioxide. The second thing is there's a huge amount of data that isn't used. The third thing is they're on an active volcano that's emitting carbon dioxide. The fourth thing is that uh, downslope, uh, a motor vehicle's emitting carbon dioxide. And there's been questions for a long time about the reliability of that information. But uh, the main um, corporations, be they fossil fuel companies or others, have been quite generous in their support for the community. So we have in Australia, um, the Australian Opera for many years was supported by a fossil fuel company. So if you look at some of the operas of the 17th, 18th and 19th century, they are terrible in terms of their view on women, their view on other races. Um, does that mean the fossil fuel companies have those uh, social views? That's just absolute garbage to promote that argument. And look as they may, um, they're trying to create a scare campaign. You can look as hard as you will. You won't find any nefarious reason for this. Now, going back to, to this article, and it says, I'm just quoting from a, a quick sentence, Keeling dies in 2005, but his seminal work lives on. Currently, the Earth's atmospheric CO2 level, it says, is 422 parts per million, which is nearly a third higher, it says, than the first reading taken in 1958 and a 50% jump on pre-industrial levels. Now, I know what we've talked about with this thing, um, with, with these parts per million, but my point is, what is this obsession with pre-industrial levels? I mean, what does this even mean in terms of the argument that they're trying to make here? Are they saying that ever since um, uh, the industrial age, that all of us are living on borrowed time and we're all um, killers of planet Earth. I mean, it just, again, just seems like more sensationalism to make us all feel guilty to the point that we will comply and do whatever it takes, even if it means um, uh, doing a disservice to ourselves and our families. Well, the 1958 figure is an interesting one because that's when Keeling started to use infrared techniques for the measurement of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, and they need to correct that for water vapour in the air. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, before that, we had more than 100 years of measurement by a bulk chemical technique, which was very slow and expensive. And that was done in industrial areas of Europe. And those methods showed a huge range of carbon dioxide. They also showed it being much lower than the present and much higher. And there was great variation. Now, when Keeling started, he did not have a period of time where they were measuring uh, carbon dioxide by the infrared technique and the chemical technique. One method stopped and they moved on to the next one. So there's no overlap and there's no correlation. And so you really can't start talking about carbon dioxide atmospheric measurements uh, as being um, very valid because you're comparing um, bananas with uh, football boots. That's the sort of comparison you've got. There are proxies that we can use to show that carbon dioxide fluctuates enormously. And what the proxies in ice core drilling shows is that every time we've had a natural warming of the planet, uh, this is driven by the orbit and driven by the sun, but every time we've had a natural warming, 1,500 years or so later, we get an increase in carbon dioxide. So it's not carbon dioxide driving temperature, it's actually temperature driving carbon dioxide. Mm. It's the exact inverse. Now, we've known that from chemistry for a very, very long period of time. This post and pre-industrial argument is a very good argument, but they forget the social argument. Pre-industrial revolution, we lived in squalor. We were poor. We were very poor. We had an average longevity of about 37 years. We had very simple diseases, which we can cure today, that killed us. And it was coal that brought us out of that miserable poverty. It was coal that gave us the middle class. It was coal that has put a little bit of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere by burning it. And when we formed that coal, it formed from carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and fixed it in coal. We later burned that coal and put the carbon dioxide back in the atmosphere. But there's a there's a key thing that the implications here don't uh, tell us, and that is that no one has ever shown that human emissions of carbon dioxide drive global warming. It has never been shown. So what we're looking at is the increase in carbon dioxide could be from degassing of the oceans. It could be from a long-term increase in volcanic activity, and we've got very little data on that. Uh, We just don't know. We have a, a fairly dodgy measurement technique that is telling us that carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is increasing. We have a previous technique that's showing that it's fluctuating. We have proxies that show that it's very low during uh, ice ages or glaciation and very high uh, during periods uh, of interglacials. And then you go further back in time, and instead of 0.04% carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, we have 20% carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And what happened? We had ice ages. So it's very clear that carbon dioxide does not drive warming. Using the word industrial revolution is trying to brand uh, industry um, with um, a bad reputation. It's trying to say that it's industry that's destroyed everything. Industry has given us many things. Yes, it's given us some pollution, and the wealthier you get, the more you can clean this up. But what burning carbon, uh, carbon compounds has done is to give us the healthy, wealthy life that we in the West currently enjoy Now, we've currently got an industrial revolution going on in China. There is no way China is going to stop burning coal. There is no way that China is going to stay a poor country. They're going to burn coal, as the US did, as Europe did, as as, um, 
other places did, the UK, they're going to burn coal to become wealthy. Now, we have saved the planet by burning coal. Once we used to chop down the forests and make charcoal out of the wood for glass making and for making steel, now we don't chop down the forests. We actually use coal. And what has happened is that over the last couple of hundred years, the area of forests has increased because we're not chopping them down for charcoal burning. So the the words industrial revolution and using it as a pejorative uh, couple of words is a, a very, very good tactic used by Marxists. But yet you go to Marxist countries, and I, in 1977, spent quite a bit of time in the Soviet Union in East Germany. There they worshipped industry that was putting carbon dioxide to the atmosphere. But our neo-Marxists now want to destroy industry, want to destroy um, society, bring us all back to the same level of poverty, and are talking about too many people living on planet Earth. Well, until those people shuffle off first, then I don't accept that argument. Look, I, uh, I couldn't agree with you more, and it, uh, it frightens me that it seems that no matter which way the, 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 the climate agenda goes, it, it, it ends up with um, losing power, l- losing food production, creating famines, creating darkness, creating a lack of energy. Everything, all roads lead to depopulation. There's just no other way that I can see. Oh, well, that's the aim. That's the aim. The aim is to kill people. They want to kill people. They want, they want to decide who's going to live and who's going to die. We don't vote these uh, faceless people in. Uh, and th- these, this is the new um, blackness that we have in society. And we are living in a black period. Just look at people's kitchens. A lot of them are black now. But look at the colour of houses. A lot of people paint them black. I saw a place in Broken Hill uh, the other day, which is in the middle of the desert, and it's painted black. I mean, that's the worst thing you can do in a hot climate. So we are living in one of these periods of time when the pendulum is swinging backwards. Mm. But I think we're seeing... With the voice vote in Australia, with the farmers in Europe, with elections in Italy and in Finland, in Argentina, I think we're seeing pushback. And people are saying, no, you're not going to bully me. And once you stand up to bullies, they back off because they're cowards. So I think the only way we can reverse this is to stand up to people. Mm -hmm. And if we don't, then this will lead us down the path of having difficulty in having enough energy to feed ourselves and to transport and if we don't have enough energy, um, we die. So I can I can see quite serious economic times coming with a recession, perhaps a war to go with it, uh, because we have weakened our energy systems. This is this is it, and this is the most frightening thing of all, isn't it? To think that uh, a blackout and and a war, etc., one way or another, the destruction of the population, the people. If you had a moment. Um, as, as we used to talk about, I don't know, years ago, we'd say, if you were Prime Minister for a day, for example, Ian, have you thought about what um, policies you would put in place? Let's say that the policies that you put in place are the ones that we stick with for the next 25 years. What, for example, would you cut and what, for example, would you introduce? Well, my policies would be called common sense policies. <laughs> uh, and the common sense policies are that we live in a society where people have an expectation of eventually owning their own house. That becomes very difficult with the number of immigrants coming into this country in the US 
there's a huge number of illegal immigrants, anything between seven and nine million have crossed that border. So I, I think we, we've got to look at immigration and the effect on the economy. Yes, the GDP does increase, but the individual wealth decreases. Uh, that would, I think, solve many problems. That is unemployment. That is uh, those people who maybe um, should consider going to university. Maybe they won't. Maybe they'll do a trade. So immigration would be one of them. I would strengthen the defence system, and we need a strong defence system such that no one attacks us. Uh, we've got a very weak defence system. I would basically start again with the education system and go back to uh, what we did um, in, in the 19th century with the Newman ideas on education. Um, I would have an economy where um, entrepreneurs are rewarded for taking risks, maybe going broke, picking themselves up again, starting again. Um, instead, we, we tax them. Australia is the highest taxing country in the world now. And um, how do you think we can be a clever country if we tax people so much? Uh, I would um, be very kind to our bureaucrats in that capital city called Canberra, and I would give them a taste of the country. So the people in infrastructure, I would move to Rabbit Flat, the Northern Territory. Why? Because there's no infrastructure. I would move Department of Aboriginal Affairs to an Aboriginal area such as Holes Creek or in Western Australia. I would move the Department of Climate if, if they existed, but I'd, uh, I'd shift them down to a pleasant place like Queenstown and Tasmania, put the Department of Agriculture out in Western Queensland, maybe St George's. Um, Department of Trade, you'd put them at, say, Gladstone, where we have a huge amount of export. Um, the Department of Finance would put them at Port Hedland, where we export uh, half a billion tonnes of iron ore a year. I would decentralise these people from their little bubble, and I'd put them in a situation whereby they have to eyeball people every day that their decisions affect. Uh, now, of course, they are so precious that many of them wouldn't move to areas where other Australians live. Well, that's fine. Uh, you've then reduced the number of people in the civil service. I would also like to see it, you... Uh, kill off five pieces of legislation for every new one you bring in. So I, I think um, if I was uh, king for a day, I would try to use words that are not used in bureaucracies any longer. Bureaucracies have the ability to raise taxes, but they never cut costs. So I'd be looking at cutting costs. Goodness me, it sounds like you have thought about this uh, for some time. <laughs> I, I really appreciate it because uh, it's the one thing to uh, to be able to provide analysis and uh, and ideas, etc. But um, at the same time, I mean, I don't think there's a, a single listener that doesn't want to see Professor Ian Plymer in full flow to know how he thinks about the big picture. And it's greatly appreciated. I'm just mindful of the time um, to go to another break because the reason is I've been thinking about this migration, immigration policy, and I've come up with something uh, that I'd like to test with you, and I'll do it publicly after the break. It's just a different way of thinking about things, and it's the different ways that are the really important part of what we're talking about here, because if we keep going down the same pathways, doing the same thing, flicking from Labor to Liberal, left to right, over and over again, which is more or less a uni party, we never get to see that great debate. And the one thing is, it's all about self-interest, and of course, it means becoming self-sufficient. And in that world, it means that you're no longer dependent on a government and it feels like we've been gone, led down a pathway to dependency and that dependency is the one that gets us in trouble because we dig ourselves into holes, we can't get ourselves out, we become hopeless or we, we, we fall into hopelessness and therefore we're victims of this uh, horrific situation in a world governed by 
policies that are unreal. They're not based on actual science. They're, they're, they're there, obviously, to serve an agenda. And if only the people would realise what's going on, they would then say, OK, it is now time to act. On that big setup, we're going to take a break and be back with more here on Weekends with Jason Albon on TNT Radio. Give me a minute with TNT Radio's Steve Malsberg. Ladies and gentlemen, it's the end of the week. So how about a little dose of Joe Biden at his best to get you through the weekend? Folks, um, uh, I, uh, if I were smart, I'd say thank you and leave. There's asylum, asylum officers and over 100 cutting edge inspection machines to help detect and stop fentanyl coming out of our southwest border. Greedflation, shrinkflation. You see that article about the Snickers bar? Well, it's going to stop. America, we're tired of being played for suckers. We get thousands. Look, we, we, you know, we now have, we used to, before the recession, before the, the pandemic, the beer brewed here, <laughs> it is used to make the brew beer here in this refinery. Oh, Earth Rider, thanks for the Great Lakes. I wonder why it's going Cost 10 bucks to make it. 10 bucks to make it. We'll teach Donald Trump a, a valuable lesson. Don't mess with the women on Now, normally, this would be humorous, funny, you know? But this is a man who's president of the United States and looking for four more years on the job. It's frightening. Thanks for giving me a minute. I'm Steve Malsberg. Catch my show Monday through Friday, 9 p.m. Eastern Time, right here on TNT. JDRF's vision is to create a world without type 1 diabetes. The type 1 diabetes community is at the heart of everything JDRF does. We were founded by the type 1 diabetes community. In the main, we are governed by the type 1 diabetes community, we're energised by the type 1 community, and we're accountable to the type 1 diabetes community. It's on their behalf that we exist, and it's on their behalf that we must succeed. JDRF exists to rid the world of type 1 diabetes. It's easy to say, but it's hard to do. So for us, that means rallying all the resources and all the people and all the organisations required to make that a reality as quickly as possible. The world's best researchers, exciting innovative companies and the passion of the type 1 diabetes community then delivered through the health system so lives get better every day, day after day, until the day we find a cure. To everybody in the type 1 diabetes community, no matter your age or stage with the disease, whether you were diagnosed recently or a long time ago, we need you to know that we are here working on your behalf to deliver a world without type 1 diabetes as quickly as we can. Thank you to everybody who supported JDRF in so many ways. You are making our vision of a world without type 1 diabetes possible. seems turned upside down we sort through it together weekends with jason olborn on today's news talk tnt welcome back to weekends my guest this hour professor ian plymer and i set it up before the break and i'm just gonna put it out there here's my crazy idea to diffuse the immigration crisis as it is and we all know that anthony albanese talks about bringing in record numbers and maybe cutting it and of course we know that it adds to gdp more people uh, consuming etc means there's more money on the bottom line and you can justify from a government perspective that that's a good result but yet we all know that that means less welfare for, for 
for for the people in general per capita. It means that the housing prices go up. We have a housing crisis, etc. Now, if you are a person from a country that wants to come to Australia, and my parents were, um, uh, well, my mother, I should say, was a, a, an immigrant. The, her um, uh, mother and father escaped uh, Russia. My grandfather escaped uh, a, a concentration camp in Siberia for opposing the communists. He was locked up for many years, got out, became a refugee, came to Australia. That's a normal process of being a refugee. But we also have an immigration policy. You can come in for all sorts of reasons. Now, if you're coming from a poor country and you might be scratching around to you know, find some rice, pay a few dollars a week rent in, in the country uh, currency's terms, but you come to Australia. And as we heard in the last hour, Mark Murray describing the postcode wars, which I asked him, were they like ghettos? And he said, yes, they were. Now, if we're having ghettos created here, it stands to reason that ghettos are community-based, based from the original you know, country where certain people are coming from. Now, if they're in that environment, it stands to reason that they're going to employ practices that were okay from where they came from as part of the survival. But here in Australia, very, very different. We don't operate like that. So instead, what we do is be become tolerant of these different uh, uh, situations and we kind of pander to it and we allow it. But we all know that this was foreseeable. So multiculturalism is, is, is being tested. So here's what I wanted to propose, the idea of what I call a private citizenship swap, kind of reverse migration. Let's say someone comes to Australia, they've had to go for five or 10 years, they might get in trouble with the law, they might not just get off the ground, they can't get the education, they can't work out the language, whatever it is, and they decide that things aren't going so well. And then someone comes along and says, well, I come from a country like the United States. I can't traditionally migrate here, but I would be willing to pay, I don't know, $100,000 to become a citizen. These are my credentials presented or, or goes through. Everyone's happy with it. And that money is paid directly to the citizen that says, you know what? I would be better off going back home to where I came from. But with $100,000, that would allow me to buy a house, start a business and educate my kids. Ian, is that crazy or is this something that possibly has some working merit here for a completely radical idea of changing the approach here, at the same time being able to say no more immigration for a period of time but until we get our own affairs in order properly? Well, there are many countries in the world you can buy citizenship by by um, giving the government some money. Um, Singapore is one of them. I think the cheapest one is Paraguay, which is about four and a half thousand US dollars. Um, so uh, that idea has already been operating, and to some extent, our four five one visas uh, were basically employing people, saying, "Well, you can add value to this country. Uh, we'll give you a special visa because of your qualifications and the fact that we can't get any people in this area." But we've got a very, very long history of immigration in this country, and um, we have had problems in the past. Uh, we had problems with Irish people, uh, and in fact, there's a a, a thought floating around that in New South Wales, compulsory education was to get Irish thugs off the streets and get them into the schools. Nothing to do with educating children. It was to get, to get them off the streets and make the police the job a bit easier. I remember in post-war times in Australia where we had many immigrants come from communist countries and also immigrants who'd fought in the fascist armies. They were working together side by side in the Snow Mountain Scheme. And yes, we did have a few little problems, mainly um, with the Ustashi or the Serbs and the Croats. Uh, these were Christians and Muslims who were, who were fighting and they'd done it for generations. And I think we really should, with our multiculturalism in this country, say, look, don't bring your troubles here. We don't want them. You're escaping from them. But my view is that multiculturalism has failed. It's failed because what we've done is we've created tribes. 
and these tribes have taken a very long time to integrate. Now, I recall um, we had many Italians and Greeks who came after the Second World War to Australia. They didn't integrate. It took a generation before they started to integrate and generally two generations for them to completely integrate. But this country, its laws, the practices uh, are all based on Christianity. Now, I think if you come here, you've got to be able to um, say that I'm going to follow uh, this country's history. I'm, I'm going to um, view the laws of the land as the highest possible laws I, I can have. If you come in here with laws that you think are higher than the laws of the land, then you shouldn't be here. So I, I think uh, we've had a failure of multiculturalism. We've had a failure of um, our uh, immigration scheme, and we only saw that uh, recently on the 8th of October last year. We had a demonstration at the Sydney Opera House. There was not one Australian flag to be seen. These people were demonstrating against Israel. Israel on the 8th of October hadn't even retaliated. And this was a calculated, deliberate, anti-Semitic demonstration. That is not the way we do things in this country. Those people shouldn't have been here. Even if they had citizenship, it should have been revoked. Uh, they should have been kicked out of the country. Uh, so... Uh, by contrast, in the US, uh, they have similar sorts of demonstrations, but they're much more patriotic than in Australia. You see the flag in the US much more than you see a flag in Australia. Um, they, like this country, are also a country filled with immigrants, um, but they have been a bit tougher in the American way. We, I think, have been a little bit too tolerant in Australia, and as a result, uh, people have just bulldozed us. So my view is we've got to have a complete new look at immigration. The best way to have that look is to stop it for a while and just see what we can we can do, have a good think about it, just see what we've done to ourselves. I think we should be much, much more savage with deportation and uh, taking away people's Australian citizenship. Indeed. Now, this idea of being ashamed to be Australian on Australia Day and Anzac Day is just a bridge too far for me. We talk oh, about it certainly is for me too. Look, we have one day um, where we can celebrate this nation, but we have weeks where we celebrate transvestites and homosexuals. We don't celebrate the most important people in the country, and they're the farmers. They're the people that keep us alive. Why don't we have farm months where we actually celebrate what the farmers do? to keep this country alive and our farmers in this country feed the 26 million people in this country plus feed another 60 million people outside this country. We should be celebrating the people who are actually adding value to this country. We shouldn't be celebrating every single cause that you have. And we have all sorts of, of special days and weeks for this group and that group, whereas the ones that have built this country and are still building it get pilloried and spend their life fighting regulatory authorities and fighting discriminatory laws just so they can feed their families. It's it, it's shocking, isn't it, when you think that uh, even Christmas Day is somewhat subdued, but we're celebrating Ramadan and Diwali Day, et cetera, uh, in, in ways to, you know, this whole idea of inclusiveness. But um, we, we, we support... Um, collectivism, but we don't support the majority. It, it seems that inclusiveness is selective. It was the same in, in COVID. If you decided that you wanted to practice in, informed consent and realised that the uh, mRNA wasn't going to offer you any value, you were isolated from society the same way. 
How is it that uh, we can live in a world that's, that demands compliance? It's a world that won't debate us, of course, but um, it seems like in, in many ways we're being hijacked by a, a hidden hand that just doesn't want to move on here. So it, it comes down to a, a, a feeling of survival. It comes down to, a, it has to be an individual that stands up at some stage and just says enough is enough. Is there any other way that, uh, that, that that there is going to be a revolution that's going to be just a normal process of, of, a, of an election cycle? Or is it really a case, do you think, that uh, it is up to the people to say, OK, I've had enough here, and it becomes a big deal? Well, most Western countries have had a civil war. Australia hasn't. We are far too wealthy. Uh, and by being very wealthy, then we are unable to keep everyone in a job. So we create all this BS jobs, and these are people in regulatory areas and in compliance. They, they, these are totally, absolutely useless jobs. How can someone get any fulfilment out of making someone's life um, full of grief? Mm. How, how can those people uh, look at themselves in the mirror and say, oh, yes, I'm adding value to this country? So in order to stop significant social problems, we've created all this these BS jobs. Now, you look around, you look around and just... Every time you purchase something, you look, look at the number of people who are not working at the pace they should be or have got a BS job or who are basically involved with a clipboard and ticking the boxes uh, involved in regulation. Now, kids go through university and get a law degree and then go in to holding a, a clipboard and ticking boxes. They are compliance officers. So and I think we're suffering from too much wealth. And this is why we can afford to have our climate policies, which destroy wealth. This is how we can afford to have too much regulation, which stop entrepreneurs and stop people uh, adding to the family wealth, say on a farm or a mine or, or a fishing uh, business. Uh, we, we are so comfortable. We've never known starvation. Um, pretty well everyone listening to this program has not experienced a world war. Um, we are so well off and we don't know it. And that's because we don't know history. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now, it wouldn't be a conversation with you without bringing up nuclear power. Now, assuming that we go down a pathway and one way or another, Labor Liberal, and they are playing this green um, green situation, Chris Bowen gets his own way. Let's say we have a collapse and we somehow get an early election and there's a change in government and a change in the positive. How quickly could it be that we could actually get nuclear power up and running here in Australia? Well, be very quick. We've already got a nuclear industry. We've had a nuclear power station for 70 years. Uh, we're under a second power station, but it generates enough power for itself. Uh, it generates medical isotopes, and, and I've used it a lot in research work. Um, we already have people skilled in. We don't need to build a five megawatt, a five gigawatt um, nuclear power station. We can get by with uh, a lot of uh, small modular reactors. We have many isolated towns, isolated mines, uh, isolated businesses where you need power. And once that mine closes, you pick up on a B double and take the the generator to somewhere else. So we we could do it almost uh, instantly. You can you can almost now go down to Bunnings and buy yourself a GE power station um, in row sixteen. So um, we could do it very, very quickly. Um, now, here is the irony. We're quite happy to use radionuclides uh, and nuclear medicine if we have cancer. We don't object to nuclear power. We're pretty happy to have nuclear power 
running submarines. And that's been happening in the world since the 1950s. But if we want it for our household lighting, heating, air conditioning and cooking, oh, no, this is sinful and evil. We have some very isolated parts in Australia where there are old uranium mines. And these are places where you can put the spent fuel, maybe for later reprocessing, or as what Australia should be doing is having a cradle-to-grave nuclear industry where we mine it, we create the yellow cake, we create the fuel rods, we lease out the fuel rods uh, and get money for that. We bring them back and clean them up and get money for that, send them out again. Uh, and we can basically control the world's nuclear industry because we've got so much uranium in the ground. Now, those ideas have been floating around since the 19. 19- 70s, certainly since the 1980s. Now, these are great entrepreneurial ideas, and there was one company in the 1980s that did the sums and said, look, if we had a cradle-to-grave industry, this would be $5,000 per capita, per man, woman and child for Australia forever. Now, why don't we do that? I mean, I'm I'm a great supporter of of having a great mix of power. We can have solar running a phone booth right out in the middle of nowhere or um, wind running some um, outback uh, ranch. We can have uh, solar running signals on a railway line in the middle of nowhere. We've got plenty of gas to use in eastern and parts of Western Australia. Uh, We've got um, a lot of very good quality coal in Australia, thousands of years of coal, which we should be using, and thousands of years of nuclear, which we should be using. So, again, I come back to appealing to common sense. The politicians who are anti-nuclear are trying to squeeze out just one or two green votes. The conservative side of politics shouldn't even worry about um, trying to get green votes. I'll never get them anyway. So just go for what is common sense. You know what? Common sense is the is not common, is it? And that's not the, at all. That, not that's at where all. we are at the moment. At the same time, we are in an incredible election year. We've got um, uh, Russia going off um, in March. We've got... India, April, May, we've got Canada going off in October and the US in November and the UK before January of 2020. And don't forget Queensland. And and Queensland, of course. And it seems apart from Russia and India, there will be changes of government in all those jurisdictions. Does that provide you with some level of confidence that that there can be some positive change coming? I don't know about confidence, but uh, I said to my wife the other night, 2024 is going to be one of the great years for politics internationally. We are seeing um, new faces appear, like in Italy, in Hungary, in Finland, in Argentina. And these are exciting people. And these people have got one battle on their hands, and it's battling the entrenched bureaucracy. And there it is, isn't it? That's what we refer to some as uh, as a deep state in the United States. Oh, yes, yes, and drain the swamp, never a true word. And if Mr Trump does get back to be president again, he's had enough bitter experience. By God, I wouldn't want to be in his way as a bureaucrat. (laughs) Oh, goodness me, isn't it? Uh, And and they say that Trump always looks like he's going to lose before he wins, but he also likes to be able to get square or or to... He uh, likes a fight. He likes a fight. What's wrong with that? And absolutely, could there be a better president uh, in the future? Well, I don't think so. And he's, he hasn't had a career in politics, so he doesn't owe anyone anything. He can just do what is right for the country. 
There it is, absolutely. Well, Professor, it's been a privilege and a delight to be able to speak to you. A lot of great topics covered, a lot of looking into the future as well as the past. I'm very grateful for the time today and thank you for your wonderful thank you, ideas. Thank you very much. We're going to take a break and we'll be back after the news with a brand new guest all the way from the UK. David Shipley will be joining me. You're watching and listening to Weekends with Jason Olborn here on TNC Radio.